guys, we are starting a fun new series called Double Dog Dare. And uh, over the next four weeks, I'm going to be daring you to implement four action steps that I think will help you take a step forward in your Christian walk or jump step your faith or wherever you're at in that. And so we're going to just jump right in, grab the study guide that's in your program. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. As you're doing that, quick question. What book of the Bible did Jesus most quote from? Does anyone know? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? Dude, he's a Bible teacher at Christian school. That's why he knows that. You're like, man, that guy's smart, dude. Uh, <laughs> um, isn't that, I, I, 80 times Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. I thought that was interesting. Now, if you've never read the book, book of Deuteronomy, one of the concepts and ideas that get spoken of in this book is an issue or the concept of land, which is still an issue when you turn on the TV and look at the Middle East. Uh, Israel and the Palestinians, they're all interested in land. Everybody's fighting about land. When you're reading the Old Testament, there's four lands that the Jews live in. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. One of the lands is Egypt, right? Prince of Egypt, and they're trying to get out of Egypt. That's one of the lands. The other is Canaan, known as the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the promised land. Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And the wilderness or the desert, right? Now, one of the things that I want you to know uh, is that when you're reading through the Old Testament, one of the hints is that wherever the Jewish people are living, it's not so much a real estate issue as it is a spiritual condition issue. It is giving you an indication wherever they're living uh, of, of the relationship that they have with God. So I've gone over this with some of you. I want to just get into it real quick, and then I'll show you where I'm going to land. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. When they're living in Egypt, it is a reflection of spiritual slavery. It's it, very interesting. As you read between the lines, when the Jews are living in Egypt, it's almost as if they don't have a relationship with God. I mean, they're Jews, and they sort of know and refer to Yahweh God, but they're not worshiping him. To us, it represents someone who's in spiritual slavery and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. When you're living in Canaan, that's, that's what you're trying to strive for. Live in the promised land. Live under spiritual blessing and spiritual success. It's not that everything is perfect and rosy. There's still ups and downs. But it's living obediently under God's blessing. Babylon, modern day Iraq. You know, it, when, when, when God uh, spoke to his children in the Old Testament, as a good parent, here's what he would do. If you obey me, I'll reward you and bless you. If you disobey me, that is your right, but I will discipline you. And one of the things that he does is he tells them in advance what the discipline is going to be. And in some of these cases, it's you disobey me, fine, have your way. But now I'm going to send you to live in Babylon as captives there. And, and there are some of us that have a relationship with God, but you know and I know, or more importantly, you know and God knows that we are living in disobedience, and it represents Babylon, really spiritual rebellion. But what I want to talk to you about and, and kind of land on, because it's what Deuteronomy really focuses on, is wilderness or the desert. Now, the, the, the Jews live here for a period of time because they've left Egypt, right? Moses shows up and, and the ten plagues, and finally Pharaoh lets God's people go, right? And they ha they're going to go from Egypt to the promised land, to Canaan. Do you know how long that trip should have taken them? Now, this is the entire nation, all of them carrying their stuff, just walking. You know how long it should have taken them? About 11 days. Question, if it's supposed to take them 11 days, why did they spend 40 years in the desert? What happened? Now, it, what we read is they, quote, got lost, but that's just a euphemism for they were just going around in circles. Why? 
What, what, what's going on? If there's an interesting, as the book of Deuteronomy begins, right? Because God, he took them out of Egypt and wanted to give them the, the promised land. God says this to the Jewish people in, 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 in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 2. This is what he says. He says, let's put it on the screen. He says, the Lord said to me, you've been wandering around in this hill country long enough. Turn. So for those of us who are kind of thinking that the Christian journey is kind of ho-hum, nothing really exciting going on in my spiritual walk, I don't seem to be experiencing God like other people do, I keep struggling with the same old issues, I don't seem to be making any progress, you know, I don't even, you know, I don't, got not getting anything out of my Bible. If, you, if you're there, God says to you and to me, he says, enough is enough, don't you think? How about you try something new? How about it? How about you make a turn? And try something differently because he doesn't want you. And he doesn't want me in the, in the wilderness. I got that picture for you. That's, that's where they wandered. It's not very exciting. Make a turn. Make a change. Now, the big issue is that they're living in fear instead of living in faith and going into the promised land. But what is absolutely fascinating, one of the things I love about the Bible is here I, I've been preaching this book for 30 years. And I'm still learning new stuff. One of the things that I found this week, I'm going to share with you right now. So God wants them to leave the wilderness, go into the promised land. What he tells them to do in, Genesis, in Deuteronomy 1 and back in Exodus, I'm going to tell you now, it doesn't sound very spiritual. Doesn't sound very earth shattering. And yet he gives them a bite-sized plan and step. You guys want to get out of the wilderness? You want to start, stop going around in circles? I'm going to give you a plan on how to do that. And this is what he says to them in Deuteronomy 1. He says, I want you to choose some well-respected individuals. I've given you what that means. Someone who's mature. Someone who's honorable. Someone who's godly. Someone who's committed. That's what it means to be well-respected in God's eyes. I want you to, to pick people who are known for their wisdom. In other words, they're spiritually smart. And their understanding. They know how to get along with people. Okay? And I want you to appoint them as leaders. But not leaders over programs. No, no, no. He says this. Then you responded. God and Moses are having a conversation. Your plan, God, is a good one. So Moses did what God commanded, and here comes the plan. Ready? The earth-shattering plan to get them out of the wilderness. Uh, I want you to put some in charge and responsible for 1,000 people. I want you some to put in charge of 100 people. I want you to put some in charge of 50 people, and here it comes. I want you to put some in charge of 10. Wait a minute. This is your plan, God? We've been wandering the desert for 40 years, and this is the plan you come up with? That's my plan. You guys are living and existing as this huge nation that I love and want to bless, and what I'm telling you is you have to reorganize yourself, and you need to get into groups of 10. Now, when we speak of groups of 10, what do we call those, groups, those things? Huh? Look at the first point. First point is that thriving spiritually includes and requires you being part of a small group. See, see we, we last week started signups for small groups. We have this week and next week signups for small groups. This is not a fad. This is not us trying to be cool. This is not some new program that the, you know, that the church in America is trying. No, no, this is God's plan since the beginning of time for spiritual growth, maturity, and health. By the way, the first small group, is God. He exists in a small group. It's called the Trinity. He exists. Now, 
If you don't believe me, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins. Jesus, Jesus is risen from the dead, proven he, was, he is God. Jesus ascends into heaven and goes to prepare a place for us. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to all Christians, and Jesus establishes this thing and institution called the church that he's going to transform the world with, right? Imperfect church as we are. Wonderful. God, what do you want us to do? How do, we, what do, we want, how do we create hell so that we can transform the world and spread your message? I'm glad you asked. And at the beginning of Acts, in chapter 4, just as the church is established, you've got this phrase that keeps getting repeated. It's on the screen. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You want to know how I want you to organize yourself? I want you to get together as a big group, and then I want you to get together as a small group. And then I want you to get together as a big group, and then I want you to get together as a small group. And you have this back and forth, this constant small group, big group, small group, big group. Why? Because we learn differently, and different things happen to us in the context of different groups. There's some things that are uniquely happening here today on a Sunday morning that can only happen on a Sunday morning. And frankly, the more people we can pack in, the better. I'll give you one example. Worship and singing. Have you ever been in a church where you're the only person in the row and there's no one in front of you, behind you? How does the worship sound then? Not too good because you're the only one you can hear. The more people you can pack in, the better. There's some things I can't do what I'm doing and go to your living room. Okay, I got some PowerPoints for you and I got a presentation. You'd be like, who the heck does he think he is? right? There's some things that uniquely happen on Sunday morning, but Sunday morning is not enough. You need what happens uniquely in a small group. In fact, you want to know what statistics tell us? If all you're doing is showing up on Sunday morning, if that's all you're doing, statistics tell us, it may not be true of you, but statistics tells us you won't be here in five years. Because eventually something inside of you will go, something's missing. I mean, I, I like Dave, and I like the worship, and the donuts are great in between services, but I'm missing something. I'm going to tell you what it is. You're missing what we call connection or community or fellowship, and that happens in the context of a small group. You go, what, well, what do small groups do? Same passage. Let's expand it a little bit more. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47 says this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All the believers were together. That's a common theme. They held everything in common. They sold property and possessions, and they gave to each other to whoever had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the verse we just read. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let's just look at what's underlined. What does small groups do? They study the Bible together. They pray together. They help each other out. They just flat out eat together and have fun together. They worship together, and they add to the church. See, here's one of the things we talk about as leaders of the church. We don't consider adding someone to the church, you just showing up on Sunday morning. You know when we consider you really a part of the church? When we see you at a small group. Because something changes. When someone starts serving And in a group, they start referring to it as my church. Until then, you know what they call it? Your church. It's very interesting just the language that people use. And I'm telling you, God created you to exist in community. He created you to exist in the context of group. 
It's so critically important. I heard of this pastor, small church. He decided everybody that got baptized that year, he was going to invite to his house. It was 12 people. And they were all excited. We get to go to the pastor's house. And it was kind of a potluck. Everybody brought something and some bread and salad and everybody showed up. And during the meal, he said to them, do you want me to predict your spiritual future? And they're like, this sounds weird, but yeah, go ahead. Sounds interesting. And he says, I want to predict your spiritual future. Here it is. Uh, statistics tell us, might not be true of you, but statistics tell us that within five years, two of the couples in this living room will get divorced, unfortunately. And one of the couple, uh, of the individuals, will feel awkward because, you know, my ex goes to the church. So one, at least one of you from each couple will leave the church in the next five years because of divorce. Three of you will get in conflict and you won't get along with someone else in the church and, and you'll get upset at them and you won't feel it's solved enough and three of you will leave the church because of conflict. One of you will lose interest in church. What that really means is you become more interested in something else. You're more interested in golf on Sunday mornings. You're more interested in NFL on Sunday mornings. You're more interested on guys or girls. You're staying up late at night on Friday or Saturday night so you don't come to church. You're more interested in softball. You're more interested in your kids' sports. You become more interested in someone else, something else, less interested in God, and you too will leave the church in the next five years. Two of you will experience moral failing, and you will leave the church in, in five years. One of you will go through a major tragedy, and it'll hurt terribly but you'll get upset at God because he let you, quote, go through this tragedy and you will leave the church. And one of you will have a faith question that does not get answered about whatever, creation, evolution, human suffering, whatever it is, and you will leave the church. In, in five years, statistics tell us that 10 out of 12 of you will not be in church. Makes you want to go to the pastor's house for dinner, doesn't it? And it got real awkward and real quiet. And one of them said, well, what do we need to do to make sure we're not that statistic? What can we do to change that? Pastor said, I'm glad you asked. You want to know what changes it? The 12 of you make a decision to get in a small group. And when disaster happens, and when questions happen, and when doubts happen, and when life happens, hold on to each other and don't let each other go. That changes things. Guys, from the very beginning, God intended us to live in relationship with one another. From the very beginning, you absolutely have to consider and be part of a group. Now, I want to be complete because the Bible talks about various three types of groups that you need to be a part of. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. Number one, we talked about large group. That's Sunday morning. You're here. Check. You need to be part of a small group. Okay? As small as three, as big as 12. We've given you options to sign up for. If they don't work, then figure something out for yourself. Find another Christian, you know, guy or gal at, at, at work and connect to, to that person, but figure it out, okay? I want you to notice, though, it's not just large, big group and small group. There's one other group you have to be a part of. I'm calling it miniature group. You go, what the heck is that? That's one plus one. You plus God. It's what we refer to as daily devotions. It's you and God spending some time together. Does that make sense? You need all three groups to be well-rounded as a Christian. You need what happens on Sunday morning. What you need what happens midweek in someone's living room or Bible study or in a small group. And you need that one-on-one -on -one time with God. Does that make sense? All of them are important. You leave one of them out and you won't be balanced as a Christian. You have to know that about yourself. Now, just so you're clear, that last line is still a group. 
It's not just you alone, which leads to point number two. Thriving spiritually cannot happen alone. Can't happen. This problem gets introduced to us right at the beginning of the Bible. So God creates the animals. It's great. He creates this, that, and the other. It's great. First time he says something is not good is in Genesis 2.18 when he says this. The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. Not good. You probably won't recognize this picture, but you probably will recognize the name of Hiro Onada and his story. Maybe not his name, but his story. Onada, or Hiro Onada, was one of the four Japanese soldiers that was left on one of the islands of the Philippines during World War II, when Japan was in the middle of World War II. And, and so they left these four Japanese soldier, soldiers in the Philippines with the command to keep fighting and keep the, the empire, the Japanese empire, and its mission moving forward. Um, well, over time, uh, these four Japanese soldiers didn't realize that the war had ended. They didn't know that because they're on the island all by themselves. They have no communication. And so they kept fighting. Eventually, uh, w- one of them was captured. Two of them were killed. But Ido kept fighting and fighting and fighting. He would hide in the jungle. He would go into town and steal chickens and vegetables and fruit from the locals. Um, but it wasn't just him stealing stuff. This guy, because he thought the war was still going on, was responsible for killing 30 nationals. Do you know how long he fought World War II after it was over with? 29 years. 29 years. They spent half a million dollars to try and find him. They put loudspeakers into the, into the jungle, telling him the war's over. In fact, Japan and America are now allies. He wouldn't believe it, right? They dropped pamphlets into the jungle. Give up. Give all, you know, surrender. He wouldn't give up until finally on March the 10th, 1974, 29 years after he'd been left in that jungle, he finally surrendered because they were able to get uh, a message to him from his former captain. And his former captain basically said, dude, man, give up. It's over. I mean, not literally. I'm trying to contextualize for you. He didn't say dude. And he surrendered his rusty old sword. He went in looking like the picture you have on the screen. He came out as an old 52-year-old man that had been broken by the jungle, basically. Why I tell you his story is because when he was taken back to Japan and he was interviewed, it was interesting. One of the things he said sounds eerily close to what God says in Genesis chapter 2. Let me show you what Ido says. Let's put it on the screen. He said this, nothing good. Nothing or pleasant happened to me in the 29 years that I was alone in the jungle. Nothing good can happen. Now, let me just be clear. We are sitting in a big room with a lot of people around us. There are still some people here this morning right now that spiritually speaking, you're alone. You're on an island in a jungle all by yourself. I, want, I need to take us a little bit on a tangent because some people mistakenly interpret Genesis 2, 18 and the problem that God identifies there. They assume God's like, oh my goodness, Adam's alone. The solution for that is let me create Eve and they can get married. And too many of us have connected the dots and assumed that the solution to the problem in Genesis 2, 18 is marriage. Not so quick. Time out. Yes, marriage gets introduced at the end of Genesis 2. 
But that is not the immediate answer to the problem and the, uh, that, that, that God introduces in 2.18. You know why we know that? If marriage was the solution to this problem, you know what God would tell every single one of us as Christians? I command you to get married. But he doesn't do that in here. In fact, there are verses that tell us that some of us shouldn't get married. That's better for some of us. Second thing we know is that if marriage was the magic wand that made you spiritually mature and took this problem away of Genesis 2.18, you know what God would have done? He would have taken the greatest, best, most perfect human being that ever walked the earth. His name was Jesus. And he would have made sure that Jesus gave you and me an example of what a perfect spouse looks like. And Jesus would have got married. Newsflash. The greatest human being that has ever walked the earth was single. What is that telling us? Singles, listen up to me. Very important. You are not less than. You are not a second category of Christians. Some of us and some of us churches have communicated the wrong thing to singles. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you married that is the wrong message that you should have heard. And if me or other pastors or churches have communicated that, that, then it's our fault. Marriage is not the magic wand that suddenly makes you happy and connected and gets rid of loneliness. Do you know why we know that? Because I meet with hundreds of couples over the years in my office that are married and desperately unhappy and lonely. But pastor, I want to get married. Then fine, go for it. I'm all for that. Now, let me also say to my single friends, I've noticed about my single friends that the older you get, sometimes the higher your standards get. Be careful there, right? My single 20-year-olds are like, I'll take anybody, you know? <laughs> but the older some of us get, it's like our standards get way up here. Just be a little more realistic. But, but marriage is not the solution, you are not a second-class Christian. You can become everything God wants you to become as a single. So know that, irrespective of whether you get married or not. The solution is not marriage. The solution is point number three. Thriving spiritually happens in community. And this is the dare that I'm giving you this morning. That's the dare that I'm giving you. I've given you a definition of what community is. And I've tried to give it to you in kind of normal English language that we can understand. Community is hanging out with a spiritual purpose. Hanging out with a spiritual purpose. Now, what I want to do is I kind of, I want you to, I want to take what you think community is or fellowship or whatever you call it. And, and I want you to, I want to rattle your brain just a little bit because I hear us talk about fellowship or community in a way that doesn't match up with what I'm reading in this book. Let me give you an example. Getting together with friends and going golfing or a hike is wonderful, but that is not necessarily Christian community. Having a bunch of Christian church people over to your house for dinner and playing a board game when you're all done is wonderful, but that is not necessarily biblical community. I'm going to take it one step further. Being in a small group, and this is going to sound contradictory to what I said, is wonderful. But unless certain things happen in that small group, that's not necessarily biblical community. That can all contribute to biblical community, but there are some unique things that have to happen as we interrelate to one another for it to be genuinely true biblical community. 
you have to engage in what is known as the one another's. You go, what the heck is that? Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. There are 59 verses in the Bible that talk about the relationship that we should have with each other, the one another verses. That's what it talks about. And there, let me give you some, some ideas. I've just given you, what, a dozen. Romans 15, instruct one another. 1 Corinthians 3, comfort each other. Colossians 3, bear and forgive each other. Serve one another. Exhort one another. Greet one another. Confess sins to one another. Show hospitality to one another. And then over and over and over again, love each other. Love one another. On and on and on. 59 times we are told to do these things. Now, what I think we're doing is we're picking and choosing the ones we want, and we're completely disregarding some other ones. So I have about 10, 15 minutes left. What I want to do is I want to highlight four from you for you and then show you how to foster this. Four of them. Let me give them to you. Number one is encourage each other when life is hard. So East, we, we in the West Coast, we have earthquakes. East Coast, they get hurricanes. And what, Dorian has been happening over there in the Bahamas and such. That's a picture of basically what's happening um, here's what's interesting, and I just have a question to you. H have you ever wondered why when a hurricane hits land, why it can pick a house up and toss it a mile away, but look back at the picture, the palm trees are still there. Have you ever wondered that? A palm tree. They took a house and destroyed it, and then when the camera crew shows up, there are the palm trees. I mean, there's a couple palm trees that got uprooted, but for the most part, they're standing there. Nothing happened to them. You don't want to know why it is. Why can a palm tree resist a hurricane? It's because of its root system. Now, contrary to popular thought, it does not have a deep root. It doesn't dig two miles into the ground with its roots. In fact, the root system is very shallow. But watch this. It extends out. Do you want to know what, why it remains stable in the midst of a hurricane? Because those roots go out and they intertwine with all the other palm trees. So when the wind hits and the rain hits, there's someone having community right there. They're trying to get a hold of you, yes. When the rain and the storm hits, what's keeping me upright is not my strength. What's keeping me upright is that palm tree over there and those two palm trees over there and that palm tree over there. Question, are your roots intertwined with someone else? Because if you wait for the hurricane to hit before you start doing that, it's too late. It's too late. You have got to figure out a system of support and encouragement for your sake and their sake. Encourage each other and make an effort right now to do that. Second point is exhort one another when life is in maintenance mode. So now this is the third time I put that picture on the screen. I got a question for you. That's the wilderness. That represents someone who's just kind of going around in life and, and, in circles. Question, do you know someone that looks, not looks like the goat, that is living life? <laughs> do you know someone that's, their life is like that? They're just kind of in the middle of a wilderness, not doing anything? Question, are you exhorting them? So just so we're clear, exhort does not mean teach. Exhort does not mean disciple. Exhort does not mean uh, advise. Exhort means to cheerlead. That's what it means. You're cheerleading them. And it's this idea that, come on, you can do better. Right? If you've had kids, it's, it's the kid that comes home with a C and you know they're smart enough to get at least a B, if not higher. Come on, you can do better. You're not chastising them. You're cheerleading them. 
Do you have people in your life that you're exhorting? Cheerleading, do you have people in your life that are doing the same? Because it, it's kind of this mutual, I give you permission back and forth. You know what? I found some of us, we just kind of live in castles and we don't let anyone in. Encourage and exhort each other. Here's the third one. Help when life is overwhelming. Help each other. I heard about this story uh, about a Sunday school teacher, a kid's classroom teacher, and she had really young kids. And, and she said, okay, everybody, kids, everybody, because she's trying to get everyone's attention. Everybody put your hands together, and everybody fold your hands, and everybody put your hands up like that. And you know how it is. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors, and inside are all the people, right? Well, she didn't realize that that very day, a little boy was coming back to church. He'd been gone for about a month. And about a month ago, he had suffered a really horrible injury, which had resulted in his arm being amputated. And there he is sitting in class, and the first day back to church where it should be safe zone, the teacher has them put their hands together, and this poor little boy can't do it because, well, he only has one arm, only has one hand. And it was at that moment that the boy sitting next to him noticed what was going on, and the little boy next to him said, how about if I use one of my hands? and you use your one hand, and together we form the church. Is that not a picture of what we should be? What we should be. Just recently, I'm not going to tell you how recent or what gender, because I don't want to give it away, but just recently I was talking to someone from our church. And this individual was saying that they had a major thing coming up in their life that was going to require... You know, it was kind of a big deal and a lot of help and would, would be required of them. And, and I was like, oh, that's a bummer. Let me pray with you. And, and then I made the casual comment, well, at least you can lean on your small group. And I could notice by their expression that something was off. And I go, what's going on? And they said, well, you know what's weird? What's weird is that my small group has not been willing or provided help. It's all my unsaved, unchristian friends that are helping me. And, and they were very quick to make sure they weren't throwing anyone under the bus. And they said, well, you know, maybe I haven't been upfront enough, and maybe, maybe I, I haven't, um, you know, been clear enough, and maybe people don't understand, or they don't know how to help me. So they were very quick to not get anybody in trouble. But I'll be honest with you, I left that conversation, and it stung me a bit. Wondering, are there people sitting right around us feeling the same way? You know, I could use a pick-me-up. I could use some help. Could I, sell, could I tell you something weird about helping other people? It's going to sound a little cold when I say it. Helping other people is inconvenient. Does that make sense? Because we're all busy, aren't we? we don't, we're not sitting around going, oh, yeah, I got gobs of hours, don't know what to do with myself. It can be inconvenient, but... I think that's kind of the point. You know, I'm willing to rearrange my schedule a little bit, and I'm willing to maybe not do in order to help you. So you can't help everyone. This, again, this is not me guilt-tripping you. This is me just asking you, just look right around you. Just around the people that God has put in your life. Is there something you can help them out with? God's asking you to, to live in community and give them a hand. Here's the last thing I want to talk to you about. I'm going to spend a little more time on this. I want you to confess your sin when life is impure. Confess sin when life is impure. So if you've been in church for a while, 
if, if you've ever talked about community or fellowship, the verse that's on the screen always gets mentioned every single time. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on. By the way, that can also be translated exhort. Let us spur one another on, cheerlead, exhort to, toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Let's live in community. Let's be connected. Let's be in fellowship. Make sure you're in church, you're in youth group, you're in small group. Make sure you do that. That's community. Time out. Why do we stop right there? Because when I read that, I'm like, uh, okay, I, I show up. Is there anything else I need to do? Why do we stop right there? And here's my point. The next two verses, I think, explain what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us point out. What does that look like? Let me show you what it looks like. Let's put verses 26 and 27 up. Notice what it says. If you and I deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for our sins. That's serious. But only fearful expectation of judgment and of fire. You know what James 5.16 says? It says, confess your sins to one another. Question, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you met with a good friend and said, this is my sin, this is my struggle, this is my weakness? When's the last time you did that? You know what I've discovered, what I've noticed? We don't do that. And I think I know why. You see, we're, we're evangelical Christians. We don't do what the Catholics do. Because if you grow up in a Catholic church, right, there's confessional. And you confess sin to the priest. Well, we believe, well, the priest can't forgive your sins. Can I forgive your sins? No, I can't forgive your sins, right? We don't do that. Well, okay, well, so maybe you don't have to confess your sins to the pastor so that I can absolve you of your sins. But what are you going to do with James 5.16? Because it still tells us to confess our sins to one another. Question, why? If, if by confessing my sin to you and vice versa, we don't forgive each other, what's the point? Think about it. It'll make sense. See, if I'm vulnerable with you and I say to you, you know what? I'm wrestling with, I'm struggling with, God wants me to do this and I keep falling short. If I'm vulnerable enough with you to share that, what happens? By the way, James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. So now that I know what you're struggling with, I'm praying for you. God, help them with fill in the blank. Second thing that happens is there's positive peer pressure. We think peer pressure is bad. Sometimes peer pressure is good. Have you noticed sometimes you're better behaved around certain people? You notice that? Why is that? That's called positive peer pressure. But the third thing is there is this healthy idea that I'm going to follow up with you and you're going to follow up with me. So next time we bump into each other, by the way, how is it going with your fill in the blank? Who are you confessing your sins to? You want to know why some of us keep struggling with the same sins? Because you're keeping it to yourself. You're keeping it secret. Whether you're a teenager or whether you're a senior, who are you talking to about this? I also think some of us, we have unhealthy hang-ups. We don't want other people to know that we don't have it all together. Could I give you a revelation? We already know that you don't have it all together. We're talking behind your back. They don't have it all together, right? None of us have it all together. It's, and by the way, you don't do this with everybody. You have to handpick who you're going to do this with. I'm not suggesting you do this with everybody, but you have to do it with somebody. 
Just a little side note, people who are a lot smarter than I am say that if you're married, it's wonderful if you can do this with a spouse, but to, for it to really work well, you have to find someone of the same gender. I'm just telling you what studies say, right? There, there is a vulnerability that you can have with your spouse, but then you also keep your guard up and maybe you're not as honest because you don't know, want to get in trouble or whatever. You got to be honest with somebody else of the same gender. Let me give you real quick, how do you foster community? This is what I'm challenging you to do. Number one is ask penetrating and tough questions. Here's the question we normally ask each other. So how are things going? That's a softball question. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that question in between services during donut time. How you doing? But biblical community asks deeper questions. How's your devotional life? What's God teaching you? How are you doing as a husband? Are you spending good quality time with your kids, encouraging them or just reprimanding them? What computer sites are you looking at on your, on your laptop? It's penetrating questions. It's tough questions, right? Do you have someone asking you tough questions? By the way, here's another good question. How you doing? No, no, really. How you doing? Because you can only have to ask that question twice. Because we don't normally tell the truth on the first time. How you doing? The second thing is make thoughtful observations. You know, I've noticed that. Fill in the blank. I've noticed that. Is it just me? You seem to be on edge. I've noticed that you're drinking a lot more than you normally drink. I've noticed that you get angry much quicker than you normally do. I've noticed that you're really negative. You used to be super happy and positive. I've noticed that your social media posts, oh my goodness. Oh, it seems like that hit a nerve with a couple of you. Do you have someone that's just making an observation? I've noticed that. And vice versa. By the way, please, don't be thinking of all the people you're going to make observations to this week. <laughs> right? You, you gain a trust to do that. And there's a small group of people you can do that with. By the way, if I start making an observation to you, I have to expect that you have the permission to now make an observation about me. And it's not because we're, it's, it, it, I'm not trying to police you and you're not trying to police me. I love you and you love me. I care about you, you care about me. By the way, do you know why we make observations? Because I have blind spots. I have things in my life that I think I have together. I really don't. And I need someone else to go, Dave, I've noticed that. And so do you. The third is to have an honest and confidential dialogue. I added confidential. I hope that makes sense. You have to all be honest with each other, but keep it to yourself. And then finally, give loving follow-up. I hear some Christians talk about accountability. That sounds like we're policing each other. We're not, we're not policing each other. We're just caring for each other. Now, look at that screen. That's risky. Let's be honest. That's risky what's on the screen. I double dog dare you to try it anyway. Because my gut tells me is that some of us are wandering that wilderness and nothing crazy exciting is happening in our lives because you're not genuinely living out Christian community. Try it. See what happens. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've taught us every single time your word is challenging and exciting and revealing to us. Father, the, re the reality is that some of us have realized today that we're that lone palm tree all by ourselves. Now it makes sense to us why when the winds come and the rain hits, we cave. Father, and it's not just because I need it, it's because others need it. It's because it was your way. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask you this question and let the Holy Spirit bring people to mind. Who do you think you could be in community with? Try and think of specific people. You know what? I, I think I could open up to them. Who did God bring to mind? Heavenly Father, we're, you've asked us to take a risk this morning to be connected to others, to be vulnerable to others, not just to live life with them and to have surfacey conversations, but to have real, honest, sometimes even difficult conversations. But ultimately, it's to make life better. Father, teach us to take that risk, we pray. And all God's people together said, amen. amen.